0: Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to finish our discussion on the Electoral College and the One-Person-One-Vote Doctrine. Greetings and welcome back once again to categorical imperatives. Uh, as always, I am lacking and liberal, and I want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Uh, if you're new to the program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we will be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. All right, and on to the topic for today. Uh, as I mentioned a little earlier. Uh, We are going to be uh, finishing the discussion we have started on the Electoral College and the one-person, one-vote doctrine. Uh, If you haven't uh, seen the first part of this video, I would highly recommend you go back and you watch that first. Uh, I'll be putting a link to it up in a little uh, card in the corner right about now. And so uh, it it yeah, it won't really make much sense if you haven't seen the first part because we've been watching a segment from a Chris Hayes. Uh, show where he is talking about this, and I've just kind of been going through uh, point by point and uh, sort of doing something of a reply video, I guess you could say. So today we have just a little, little bit more of the show left to watch, still not very much, Uh, and then after that we're finally going to uh, dive into uh, the case law that uh, explains what the one person, one vote doctrine actually is in discussing that, and that will, uh, after that, that will pretty much wrap the show up. So
1: uh, let's get right to it.
2: The real genesis of the Electoral College was the belief uh, shared by a lot of the founders that ordinary people were dumb.
0: Well, in all fairness, they just thought it. You're the one who had to go and prove it.
2: And couldn't be trusted to elect a president. So instead, people would elect electors who would in turn convene and pick like a wise man. Alexander Hamilton, uh, among others, did not want normal people choosing the president. He was very clear about this. They wanted a, quote, small number of persons to do it. But the whole idea of the Electoral College is some kind of deliberative body where they would meet, they'd come up with this wise person. It collapsed very quickly. We've never even really had that system. It has been outdated since basically the third election the country had. And the, the
0: Now the reason we have never really had that deliberative body of wise government overlords making choices for us is that uh well we've never had that deliberative body in our actual elections because we never had that deliberative body on paper. So it, it, essentially it's just uh it it doesn't exist in fact because it never existed in theory. He just pretty much made that up. And uh Look, it, is, uh, it is not true, as you will often hear people claim, that the founders uh, in creating the Electoral College uh, acted out of a distrust of democracy uh, or a distrust of uh, the people generally, the people of the several states. Uh, rather, when you actually look into it, what you see is that they created a system that was really a brilliant response to a complicated set of issues. And these are issues that do remain with us today. So, When the framers uh, wrote the presidency into the Constitution, they were creating an office that was really unlike any created before. The presidency was to be a single Republican chief executive, exercising real power, and doing so within a true federal system with strong and sovereign states. Indeed, even today, the office remains almost unique. Many Western style governments uh, are parliamentary rather than presidential, and most presidential governments are unitary governments rather than federal ones. So, having created a unique office, the founders needed an adequate process for choosing its occupant, and they set forth several criteria.
1: First, the
0: electoral process has to produce Presidents competent to discharge their extensive responsibilities, not only must the president be qualified to do the job but he must be able to exercise judgment independent of Congress and of the states. Thus, those directly choosing among the candidates should either know them personally or have reliable knowledge of their character and qualifications. Second, the process should give great weight to popular preference while minimizing the dangers of stampeding, and other mob-like behavior that can come from an excess of democracy. Third, it should reduce the risk of foreign and other secret influence. Fourth, it should balance state and national interests. It should produce presidents of strong national stature. A purely regional executive could tear the country apart either by his election or by the policies passed favoring one part of the country at the expense of the other. And fifth, the process should discourage states from trying to increase their influence by artificially inflating their vote levels. Now, uh, he was kind of right about one thing he said there, and that was when he talked about uh, the electoral... Uh, system being outdated uh, since the third election we had, uh, there's a good reason for that. Because after that election, we passed the 12th Amendment, which uh, changed the way in which the president uh, was elected, which indeed made the original system that we had used in the first three presidential elections obsolete as it was designed to do.
2: Okay, but here's the thing. This is a map of land, not of human beings. And it is true. Here's the weirdest part. It is true that in the United States Constitution, thanks to the Senate and the Electoral College, land gets to vote like the actual soil of Wyoming, the acreage of South Dakota, the square plots of the vast expanse of Utah. They get votes because they are land. It's weird when you think about it, but that's.
0: No, Chris, it's weird when you think about it, because absolutely nothing you had to say corresponds to reality. You know, the interesting thing is I had actually, when I first saw that part of the segment, I had been assuming that he was being intentionally facetious Uh, until I started poking around and finding a lot of evidence uh, from a lot of dumb progressives like Chris.
2: All right, everyone, it's been a minute. We're coming to you live from the Electoral College. Many votes here, as you can see. Very efficient way to choose leadership of the country. Um, I mean, I can't think of any other way.
0: And there's a lot more where that came from too, um, and what all of it really seems to suggest to me uh, is that I think that progressives think that this is an accurate portrayal of the argument being put forward by anyone who is in favor of the electoral college. Like this is really what they think people are defending. Now, when he talks about the Senate and the presidency, these are not aberrations in an otherwise democratic majoritarian system of government. Uh, As a matter of fact, the House is an aberration of majoritarianism in our federal republic. Now, there is a reason the House of Representatives alone has the power to submit revenue bills and the reason it is the only uh, section of the federal government that is elected directly by the people. We had just finished fighting a war that had been started over a belief that you should not be able to tax people without represent without representation. So, Article One, Section Eight, Clause One gave Congress the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. And as with every other provision to protect against the whims of the majority, Article One, Section Seven states that all bills raising revenue must start in the House. This is because the less people you give a power to, the less that power has the potential to be abused. So this is really why the House is unique among the federal government in having a direct election and why House candidates must run every two years. The power to tax is a very rare example of the federal government having direct control over individual citizens. Now let's move on to the actual doctrine uh, that makes up uh, this whole one-person, one one-vote one one doctrine. So these are the uh, relevant cases to the one-person, one-vote doctrine. And we're going to be going through uh, and looking at most of these. So as you can see, it starts in 1946 with a case known as Colgrove v. Green. Now there is a reason I start with Colgrove v. Green, and it's not because this case affirms uh, one person, one vote. Uh, Actually, it's quite the opposite. In this ruling, uh, the United States Supreme Court said that the federal uh, judiciary had no power to interfere with issues regarding apportionment of state districting. The court held that Article I, Section 4 of the Constitution, left the legislature of each state the authority to establish the time, place, and manner of holding their elections for representatives, and that only Congress can determine whether individual state legislatures had fulfilled their responsibility to secure fair representation for their citizens.
1: Next, we have the case
0: of Baker v. Carr from 1962. And Baker v. Carr found that uh, the United States Supreme Court essentially in that case distinguished itself from the Colgrove decision holding that malapportionment claims under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment were not exempt from judicial review uh, as they were uh, under Article 4, Section 4, uh, which is a section that Colgrove was relying on, that is the Guarantees Clause of the Constitution. And because uh, they framed it in Baker as an equal protection issue, uh, that they said it was separate from any political question, and the redistricting of state legislative districts, uh, if not if it is not a political question, is thus justiciable by the federal courts, Uh, However, it should be noted that Justice Harlan uh, wrote a scathing dissent uh, that was really actually very well written, too, uh, arguing that the court's decision had cast aside uh, any notion of history and prior opinions of judicial restraint and clearly violated the separation of powers that was meant to exist between the legislatures and the court. Next is Reynolds v. Sims, uh, and this, when people talk about the one person, one vote doctrine, this is probably the case that they are thinking of. I mean, these are they all uh, are similar, but the ruling in Reynolds is the one that people really most identify with one person, one vote. And in this case, the court held that states needed to redistrict uh, in order to have state legislative districts that were roughly equal uh, in population. They found that, quote, the Equal Protection Clause requires substantially equal legislative representation for all citizens in a state regardless of where they reside, end quote. All right, the next case we're going to talk about is 2015's Evanwell v. Abbott, and then we will be circling back around to some of those other ones in a little bit. You'll see why. Now, Evanwell is the most recent case dealing with the one person, one vote doctrine, Uh, This case was especially instructive in just how ridiculous this issue actually is. In a rare show of unanimity addressing the meaning of the one person, one vote principle, the court concluded that states may, if they wish, apportion districts by total population rather than by eligible voter or by registered voter. It said nothing about whether states are required to use total population, which would thereby forbid other plausible interpretations, such as apportionment by active voters. Registered voters or total number of citizens or by total number of legal residents. Now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion uh, that even I find myself in total agreement with. She concluded that nothing in the Constitution forbids these states from apportioning districts based on total population. She emphasized that nothing in the court's precedent forbids that approach, but that other metrics may be permissible, even if not required. And emphasize adopting voter eligible apportionment as constitutional command would upset a well functioning approach to districting that all 50 states and countless local jurisdictions had followed for decades, if not centuries. She said mandating a radical departure from this practice might be justified if it was clearly required uh, by either the text or the original meaning of the Constitution but that there was no good reason to believe that this was the case. That's right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg made a textualist, originalist argument in this case. A truly textualist argument. It's amazing. Um, Now, as much as I appreciate her opinion, uh, there was another concurring opinion that was also filed by uh, Justice Thomas, Uh, that took it a little bit further and that I find myself in even greater agreement with. Now, uh, he said uh, that one-person, one-vote districting is not required by the Constitution at all. He went on to say that he writes separately because his court has never provided a sound basis for the one-person, one-vote principle and that for 50 years the court has often Uh, concluded that the Equal Protection Clause is satisfied when all individuals within a district, voters or not, have an equal share of representation. The majority today concedes that the case has not produced a clear answer on this point. He said in his view that the majority had failed to provide a sound basis for the one-person-one-vote principle because no such basis exists. The Constitution does not prescribe any one basis for apportionment within states. Uh, It instead leaves states significant leeway in apportioning their own districts to equalize total population, to equalize eligible voters, or to promote any other principle consistent with a Republican form of government. The majority should recognize the futility of choosing one of these options, the Constitution. Leave the choice to the people alone and not to this court. Now, I want to stop and consider for just a moment what the one person, one vote doctrine does not do uh, in light of uh, what Chris Hayes has said about it uh, in this segment that we've been watching. First, it does not apply. Two federal elections, uh, based on the rejection of adopting such a doctrine uh, as being a violation of the guarantees clause in Article 4, Section 4, uh, which was the opinion expressed in the Colgrove v. Green ruling. And because uh, it was a 14th Amendment equal protection case, that means that it only applies to the several states. Now it also does not create, perpetuate, or require democratic majoritarianism. It was essentially created out of thin air by nine unelected judges who, uh, by design, make up an anti-democratic and counter-majoritarian body of our government. For example, uh, when the real uh, main landmark case of one person, one vote, uh, was handed down, and that was Reynolds v. Sims in 1964. Uh, In fact, just later that same day, the court also ruled on another case that you saw on that list, uh, Lucas v. 44th General Assembly of Colorado. And the case in Lucas actually uh, worked by applying the precedent they had just issued in Reynolds earlier that day. And they said that the Reynolds precedent of proportional representation uh, that overruled state districting plans that the state's voters had specifically approved Uh, This included a majority of voters uh, in those parts of the state that were underrepresented by the plan. So, essentially, in 1963, the total population of the state of Colorado was 1,970,000 people. Now, their votes were overturned by nine Supreme Court justices. So, uh, I feel to see how... This is a demonstration of majority rule as Chris Hayes claims it is. And if I can borrow one of the really, really annoying things that he said a little earlier, when you consider the idea of nine judges overturning uh, the Democratic choice of 1,970,000 citizens of a state, that's not really one person, one votey. So let's take a look real quick here at this list uh, of specifically uh, what Chris got wrong in the segment we watched. Well, first, he has no grasp of the difference between a democratic republic and a pure democracy. He believes the Supreme Court has a duty to write legislation and the right to change the constitution, Constitution by judicial fiat. He believes that the policy known as one person, one vote is actually intended to make every single vote absolutely equal on a national basis. He believes that that it is constitutional to apportion representation based on race. He believes that we are a pure democracy, uh, and it seems to give him the impression that it was set up to function only through majority rule. And finally, he is of the very mistaken belief
1: that we have a national government.
0: Now, whereas, when we look for evidence of this idea that he puts forward of unlimited uh, democratic will of majority rule, not only do we not find any evidence for it, but we find a number of rebukes against it. So, James Madison explains the problem very well uh, when talking about majoritarianism and uh, factionalism. Uh, First of all, he defined, by a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse or passion, or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens, or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community.
1: And Madison goes on
0: to further postulate about the tyranny of the majority in the legislature and in the community at large when he says, In our government it is perhaps less necessary to guard against the abuse in the executive department than any other because it is not the stronger branch of the system but the weaker. It therefore must be leveled against the legislative for it is the most powerful and the most likely to be abused because it is under the least control, hence So far as the Declaration of Rights can tend to prevent the exercise of undue power, it cannot be doubted that such a declaration is proper. But I confess that I do conceive that in a government modified like that of the United States, the greater danger lies in the abuse of the community than in the legislative body. The prescriptions in favor of liberty ought to be leveled against that quarter where the greatest danger lies, namely, that which possesses the highest prerogative of power. But this is not found in either the executive or the legislative departments of the government, but in the body of the people operating by the majority against the minority. Now, I think the danger of using democracy as a structural principle is that it will become a weapon to
1: limit constitutional rights.
0: Both the right and the left fall into this trap. Robert Bork used the democratic principles to limit the reach of the First Amendment to political speech. Liberal Supreme Court justices today claim that consideration of democracy now can be used to even limit political speech. And for similar reasons, the contentious question of judicial deference versus engagement cannot be resolved by appeals to democracy, even if it can be settled other ways. Now, the Constitution guaranteed uh, a Republican form of government to these states, but that should not be interpreted as a commitment to a broad-ranging majoritarian democracy. Natural rights protected by the Constitution that constrain democracy can easily be found. For example, the property rights protected by the Takings Clause. the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment, the various procedural rights for individuals charged with crimes in the Fourth, the Fifth, the Sixth, and Seventh Amendment, and of course the Second Amendment protection of an individual right to keep and bear arms, as well as a variety of restrictions on racial, ethnic, and religious discrimination. It's worth noting that these kinds of racist and ethnic discrimination have been largely supported and enforced in our past by popular democratic majoritarian lawmaking. we got to remember, majority does not equal morality. And, in addition to individual rights, a number of structural elements of the Constitution restrict majoritarian democracy as well. The unequal apportionment of the Senate is the obvious example. Uh, Chris Hayes speaks of this as though it is some kind of uh, flaw or mistake or some sort of accident that this happened. It's not. It is very intentionally made this way, and to get rid of it would be to destroy a very important structure of our government, and the same goes for the Electoral College. There are reasons we have counter-majoritarian measures. Now, another uh, example would be federalism, of course, insofar as it restricts the power of the national majorities. And those who are on the left must reckon with the fact that many of the court decisions, legal doctrines, and political uh, institutions advocated by the left are themselves at odds with such an approach. It is hard to argue that democracy is a central value of constitutional law and simultaneously support decisions such as Roe v. Wade, a Burke of v. Hodges, or even Brown v. Board of Education. Because all of these rulings, and many others like them, struck down uh, legislation favored by Democratic majorities for the often very much justified reason that it violated individual rights. Now, several key aspects of this decision are best understood as constraints on democratic majorities and not vindications of their power. As Thomas Jefferson put it, writing in protest of the democratically enacted Alien edition Act of 1798, quote, "...in questions of power, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution." And really, uh, that sort of bleeds right into my next point. And that is this, that Chris Hayes has never actually read the Supreme Court decisions that support a one-person, one-vote doctrine. This is demonstrated by the fact that he clearly doesn't know what they say, and he doesn't
1: know what they mean.
0: And. This next part here will emphasize why people like Chris Hayes need to be called out on their bullshit. Because not only does one person, one vote fail to support every assertion that progressives like he has made, it in fact directly contradicts them. Let's return to another section of the unanimous uh, majority opinion in the one person, one vote doctrine case of Evanwell v. Abbott. The court says, quote, The Constitution does not establish a majoritarian democracy, but instead balances majoritarianism with countermajoritarian elements, most notably the ex- uh, extremely unequal apportionment of the
1: Senate. It is implausible to
0: conclude that either the guarantee clause which requires each state have a Republican form of government or the 14th Amendment require a rigid form of apportionment that is at odds with that built into the structure of the federal government. And also the policies of many of the states at the time, both the original Constitution and the 14th Amendment were enacted. Now the Constitution does, of course, forbid apportionment found on invidious discrimination on the basis of race or other suspect classifications, but it does not require any particular numerical formula, whether based on total population, voter population, or anything else. The one-person-one-vote formula is not required by anything in the text or in the original public meaning of the Constitution. And I would like to remind you that that is a statement agreed with by everyone from Clarence Thomas to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So uh, the court goes on to say, given the widely recognized need to limit majoritarian power and offset other kinds of political inequalities, there may be a case of malapportionment so extreme that the resulting government could not be considered Republican at all. But merely deviating substantially from one or another possible interpretation of one person, one vote, does not get us to that point or anywhere
1: close to it.
0: And finally, uh, Chris is mistaken in concluding that we have or are meant to have or even ought to have a national government. And this is very simply and eloquently rebuked by St. George Tucker in his constitutional treatise from 1803. Tucker's commentaries Tucker said, quote, "This will be a federal and not a national act, as these terms are understood by the objectors. The act of the people as forming so many independent states." not as forming one aggregate nation, is obvious from this single consideration, that it is the result neither from the decision of a majority of the people of the Union, nor from a majority of the states. It must result from the unanimous assent of the several states that are party to it, differing no otherwise from their ordinary assent than in being expressed, not by the legislative authority by that of the people themselves. Were the people regarded in this transaction as forming one nation, the will of the majority of the whole people of the United States would bind the minority. In the same manner as the majority in each state must bind the minority, and the will of the majority must be determined either by a comparison of individual votes or by considering the will of the majority of the rule of the states as evidence of the will of the majority of the people of the United States. However, neither of these rules have been adopted. Each state, in ratifying the Constitution, is considered as a sovereign body, independent of all others, and only to be bound by its own voluntary act. In this relation, the new Constitution will be a federal and not a a national Constitution.
1: Uh, Now, in the last
0: video, which I'm I'm sure you went and saw because I told you you should, uh, we not only were talking about Chris Hayes, but we talked about uh, Dan Crenshaw as well. And I think the beginning where we see these two people kind of uh, uh, facing off, uh, indirectly facing off, you could say, I don't know, um, that this helps expose that all logical fallacies are not created equal. This is because at first, Chris can seem like Dan Crenshaw's opposite number. That is to say, Crenshaw will say that we have a constitutional republic and not a democracy, and the 51% can't tell the 49 what to do. The response from Chris Hayes is basically, No, we are a democracy, not a constitutional republic, and the 49% are obligated to accept the will of the 51%.
1: Now, both of these statements are equally stupid for sure, but they are not
0: equally dangerous in practice. When you get past the ham-fisted moral philosophy of Dan Crenshaw, his statement recognizes something that Chris rejects, and that is that there are certain rights of the minority that can never be
1: voted away. Now, Chris
0: Hayes is really something of a democratic totalitarian, but I repeat myself. I mean to say that he believes in democracy as long as he gets to define the term. Now, to me, democracy requires having faith that people are capable of taking in competing and contradictory information and have the ability to discern truth from falsehood, For themselves and make free choices based on the totality of the best available information at the time. Now, this is clearly something that Chris only believes in, uh, as long as the information is not personally inconvenient to him, in which case it must be excluded. Uh, And in this, uh, it's okay to him that you are making your own free choice, so long as it's the choice that he approves of. Now, I I think uh, his kind of flavor uh, of democracy can be summed up in a couple of famous quips. Uh, one is from Henry Ford. He once notably said, Any customer can have a car painted in any color they want, as long as it's black. Now, I think Chris Hayes is also really the uh, epitome of H.L. Mencken's description of democracy when he said, Democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and they deserve to get it good and hard. The fact is, Chris Hayes is holding up democratic majoritarianism and trying to convince everyone that it is the gold standard of political ideology. But he refuses to let the people he is trying to sell this to get close enough to have a good look at what it is he is trying to sell you. Because if he did, it would not take you very long to figure out the thing that he has been holding up all along is nothing more than a piece of fool's gold. Well, that's going to do it for me today here on the show. I really want to thank you all so much for taking the time to swing by uh, and listen to the program. I really appreciate it. And... uh I will be back in a while. I'm working on a video right now. It's going to be really good. Um, It's about some recent scholarship uh, that's been going on with the Bill of Rights and a lot of new things that are uh, being discovered in its history that uh, just completely turn it on its head. It's really, really fucking fascinating stuff Um, and not very well known uh, generally outside of circles of Uh, constitutional law scholars for the most part. So I think that'll probably be new information for you guys. It's really fucking fascinating information. Uh, I think everyone will love this. And also what I want to do is because uh, making these big, involved, uh, generally hour-long programs like uh, this one, uh, take me as much as a month to do. uh, And that is really working out the entire month. Um, I want to start putting out some shorter, Uh, videos between these big ones. Uh, So for example, I've got, uh, I'm working on a video about the Supreme Court cases of uh, Gibbons v. Ogden and Cooper v. Aaron. Uh, I wrote uh, a couple articles for the 10th Amendment Center where I was discussing uh, those particular cases. So I think I might use that and turn those into shorter episodes. But what I want to say is uh, if you have uh, a question Uh, or a topic you would like to hear covered uh, and you think it's generally in line with constitutional law, uh, American history, legal theory, uh, moral philosophy, really anything uh, like that, uh, I would just subscribe to the channel real quick right now, smash that like button, and then leave me a comment letting me know if there is a topic or a question you would like to hear me cover uh, in one of my shorter episodes that I can give to you guys between the long ones. And uh, as long as it is a question that I'm capable of understanding, I absolutely will. I, I, I will absolutely talk about it, that is to say. So uh, I just as I say always, if you enjoyed the show today, uh, I would ask you just take a moment and think of two people who you know who would also enjoy the show, appreciate the information that I'm trying to have with you guys, uh, and just pass this along to those two people if you could help me grow the show that way, I would be very grateful to you guys. And uh, as always, if you hated the show, I ask that you just take a moment and think of two people you know who you think would also hate the show uh, and send it to them because, quite frankly, I'm a masochist and your hate gets me off. So until next time, I have been Locky and Liberal. This has been Categorical Imperatives. And as always, DeLinda asked Carthago.